Radio. I'm Max Reaper, the editor of Royals Review, and we're back with uh, with hopefully baseball on the verge of starting to think about maybe getting ready to prepare for playing regular season games. And uh, joining me as usual is Sean Newkirk. Sean, how are you doing today? Good. Ready for draft season. You ready for the regular season? Draft season. Oh, draft Sorry. season. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, so even if they don't have real games yet, well, we will have a draft, which we'll get to in this episode. Uh, also here to join to talk draft is Alex Duvall. Alex, how are you doing? Max, I'm doing well. Uh, weather's finally turning, getting a little bit warmer. So this is my favorite time of year. If we could get baseball back, I'd be in hog heaven. It feels weird to have like the summer season start and there's no baseball games. Uh, like it just it was weird. Like it was a Memorial Day weekend. And, you know, there, I smell barbecues in the air. Um, I, I, you know, it was a beautiful day over the weekend, and th- there's just no Royals game to tune into. It's just a very, very odd feeling. It'll be, I think, especially odd, and I hopefully will have football, you know, this fall, but I think it would be very odd to have fall come around and have absolutely no football season. Hopefully we'll have sports underway by then. Uh, we'll have to see. But we are a little too, more than two weeks away from the draft uh, and so we should. I thought we should, you know, at least start talking about who the Royals might take, and who, talk about some of the names, and get get ourselves acclimated to who's going to be at the top of this draft. The Royals, of course, were really bad last year, but of course, you get the fourth overall pick when you lose 103 games, uh, and this selection will have a major impact on how the rebuild goes in Kansas City. This draft, of course, will be a little bit different because uh, it'll be only five rounds. Usually, there's 40 plus rounds in the in the draft, uh, but they're cutting it down to five. Uh, mostly because the college uh, baseball season was cut short in mid-March, and a lot of high school seasons never even got started. And uh, teams uh, sent their scouts home in March, so there hasn't been really a lot of uh, game action to watch. Uh, and so they're going to cut back the draft to five rounds this year. Anyone, af- anyone that's uh, uh, not drafted can sign as a free agent if they're eligible, uh, but teams are capped at offering no more than a $20,000 bonus to undrafted free agents, which will probably limit the talent pool quite a bit this year. Uh, but Alex, you know, I think we've talked a bit about you know, the, the the kind of the cons and a little bit of the pros, I guess, of having a five-round draft. But how do you think teams will kind of change their strategy based on this short draft? I mean, like, how do the Royals attack a five-round draft, uh, especially when they haven't seen a lot of amateur, they haven't seen any amateur baseball being played the last couple months? Yeah, I have thought a lot about this, especially during this, you know, the quarantine. I've had a lot of time to think about absolutely nothing if I want to. So <laughs> I have put a lot of thought into this, and I really can't decide. But I think the kind of the top conclusion I'm, I've come to is that I think there will be examples of teams that will sign. I, I should backtrack. Teams like the Royals who have you know, three picks in the top 45, another one in the 70s, and I think even another one in the top 100 um, who have, you know, like five top 100 picks, four top 100 picks that will just sign the cheapest player they can sign because their draft pools will be bigger than someone like the Astros who might only have, what, three or four picks in this draft because of their punishment. So if you can sign the cheapest players you can sign, you have even more leverage than a normal draft because then you can drop down. Let's say you have somebody in the 20s on your board, but you want them there in the 30s. You have more leverage now than ever because of the bonus pools, because of the number of the sheer number of picks or lack thereof. So, um, you know, the Royals in, the, in recent drafts have grabbed guys in the fifth, sixth rounds that have um, 
you, you know, move through the system a little bit. Um, last year they drafted uh, Vinny Pasquantino in the 11th. He did really well all year. Um, so anyway, but you have the, you have more leverage now than ever, I think. And so I think it's going to shake up what you see at the top of the draft because teams like the Royals and the Tigers and the Orioles who have multiple picks early on will like what the Royals did when they drafted Hunter Dozier and then Sean Manaya. Um, I think you'll see more of that, um, but I don't know that to be sure. Um, I, I really don't know how it's going to go, which I think is one of the most exciting parts about this draft is you just don't know. Like I, if, AC, if Asa Lacey went number one overall to Detroit because they wanted to save some money, I wouldn't be surprised at all. If they took Spencer Torkelson, a first baseman, would not be surprised at all. So I'm really excited in that regard, but I also think it leaves doors open for teams to be really, really strategic in how they divvy up their money. Yeah, and the Royals will have the third largest bonus pool at $12.5 million, which is a little bit reduced since it's five rounds, uh, a little bit reduced from what they originally were going to have, the, uh, a $13.5 million bonus pool. But I agree. That's a good point about the leverage. Um, it's The teams are going to have enormous leverage over these draft picks. Number one, for the you know having them because they're going to have some, I think, more flexibility with with money than they would have in the past with with having fairly large bonus pools and only five rounds of of guys getting significant bonuses to deal with, but also you know a lot of these college players and even high school players I think to an extent they're going to be dealing with a glut of talent at the college level so you know maybe the Royals draft let's say they draft a college junior right now. And um, they can say, look, you can sign our, our bonus or you can go back to your school where, by the way, your seniors got another year of eligibility uh, because there was no season. Also, there's probably going to be more high school players going into your program than usual because they're foregoing the draft and they're going to just go to college, play college ball. And so, you know, you may have been the man last year, but you're suddenly going to be competing against all these other players for playing time. And, and maybe you're not the Friday night starter or maybe you're not hitting cleanup. Uh, next year, and that can affect you know that maybe that affects your, your draft uh, status next year. So, you know, I think there could be some players that maybe take a look at that and say, well, I don't want to go back to that situation. I'll I'll go ahead and sign now. Um, and, and you know, the money thing is interesting too. I think it's, it'll be interesting to see with teams kind of crying poor, which these are tough financial times for everyone. I think you know maybe they're you know, maybe you don't you want to think baseball teams are exaggerating, but they probably are hurting uh, from not having any games right now. So. Um, you know, I'm curious too. Like, do they cut back on the draft and say, like, look, we in a normal year we would pay good bonuses up to slot, but because we don't have any money coming in right now, we're gonna have to play it cheap this year. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of well, different, different ways it can go. Go ahead. Yeah, one thing I wanted to add into that same conversation really quick is if you have a, a junior like Spencer Torkelson who is draft eligible but could go back. I think one thing that you could have le potential leverage for these teams too is not just the money and the lack thereof, but hey, Torque, you can go back to school if you want. Can you guarantee me, like if, if I was a GM, can you guarantee me if you go back to Arizona State, you're going to have a spring season next year? Because, I, I mean, I, I think it's likely. I don't think there's any way they missed two years in a row. But on the off chance that, you know, we have, you know, the fall opens up and there's football. And then we see this hit us again in December, just like it did this year in the winter, but it sticks to the spring. You know, I, I think there's a small gamble by going back to school. What does that look like for these kids? I just think there is more leverage now than ever for the teams at the top of the draft and more leverage for the teams in general to hold over these kids, which 
is just a really, really bad spot for the players, no matter how you shake it. And quite frankly, some of these guys won't have programs to go back to. I mean, no, I have to worry about I don't think so much with Arizona State, but we've already seen Bowling Green cut their baseball program. I think you're going to see, you know, as these uh, schools kind of reassess their budgets, if there's no college football this fall, you'll definitely see a lot of baseball programs get cut because they absolutely rely on that football money to, to fund their programs. Uh, but you could see a lot of baseball programs get put in the chopping block, unfortunately, uh, which could, you know, even create even more leverage if you've got a player that his programs may not even exist in the spring. Uh, you know, Sean, with the NFL draft, uh, you know, they held their draft in the April and, and people were kind of expecting crazy things to happen because player, you know, teams didn't have a combine and they didn't have a good close look at some of these players. But, you know, for, for the most part, things I think went kind of normal. I don't think things were like crazy in the NFL draft. Uh, what are you kind of expecting with the major league draft? Are we going to see some, some weird shenanigans or is it going to be kind of the same as a normal draft? Just, just maybe shorter. No, I mean, cause the NFL the NFL, they played their entire season, right? Or uh, by the college football played their entire season. Um, but, you know, the NCAA got four-ish weeks in, give or take. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's going to be a lot of – going to be a lot of teams that are going to benefit from players that should go higher. Um, I think I said on the last podcast where you'll have, like, the Andrew Ben attendees who, you know, rose up that spring – that you know probably still turn out to be probably Andrew Benatendi, but they don't get the momentum uh, that you know moves them up the draft boards or anything like that. So I think I think you're going to see a lot of teams uh, take advantage of that, just kind of out of chance, as opposed to you know necessarily good scouting. There's a couple guys as I put together the kind of names to know list. There's a couple guys that um, you know look like clear cut guys that under a normal season they would be much higher you know assuming that they perform as well as either they were in the first four weeks or they're expected to that yeah i mean you could see them moving up considerably so i think that players i think teams have a lot of leverage over over players at this point um given that there is effectively the less demand but there's more supply um it demands obviously it's a weird word to say demand in that sense but there are fewer opportunities so think of it like job applications there are fewer number of open positions, but the same number of applicants. Um, so that gives the employer in this scenario leverage. Uh, so I think the teams are going to say, you know, propose they're going to, for some guys, they're going to say, listen, here's 70% of slot. It's just enough to, that we'll get the comp pick back next year. Take it or leave it. Um, you know, because it's not as if, you know, if you lose the one guy, it's not as if you've got the, you know, rounds 11 to 40 where you can uh, overspend to overspend your pool and find drop down guys. So I just think that teams have way more leverage this year than than the players do. Um, and that sucks for the players. Well, let's talk about talk about some of the players that might be uh, going early in this draft. Uh, the, the Tigers have the first overall pick, uh, followed by Baltimore, then the Marlins and then the Royals. And, you know, Kylie McDaniel, ESPN, uh, he has a new mock draft out today. Uh, but he wrote a couple of weeks ago that the Royals are in a tough spot of picking fourth in what is generally seen as a three-player draft. Those three players being Arizona State first baseman Spencer Torkelson, Vanderbilt shortstop Austin Martin, and uh, Texas A&M pitcher Aza Lacey. Uh, Alex, is that kind of how you see this draft? Or do you think that the top of this draft is maybe a little more muddled and maybe we see, might see some surprises? Yeah, I actually think that 
um, and, and I've kind of been running this uh, campaign over at the Royals Farm Report Twitter account for a while that I think Zach Veen is actually the third best prospect in this draft. Um, I really like Asa Lacey. I really like Emerson Hancock and Nick Gonzalez. I just think Zach Veen has more upside than all three of them. Um, I think for safety's sake, you got to go with Torque and Martin at number one and two and 1A, 1B, really. Um, but I really like Zach Veen um, in this draft. I think he could be a – I think he will be for sure the first prep bat um, off the board. But, yeah, I think, you know, Torkelson and Martin are all but guarantees to be gone by the time the Royals draft at number four. And I think you know, whoever goes at number three is going to kind of dictate what the Royals do. Um, and, and so I think in that regard, it's the first two are guaranteed. But, but then after that, um, I know everybody likes the two pitchers. Everybody likes Nick Gonzalez, but um, I've kind of been driving the Zach Veen bus for a while now, and he's he's my personal favorite choice for the Royals at number four. Well, tell us a little bit about Veen. He's a he's a Florida high school kid, outfielder. Uh, certainly, seems he's you said like he's a top prep player. What if the Royals did go in that direction? What kind of player would they be getting? He reminds me a lot of Christian Yelich, where the hit tool. Like and it's hard to judge a hit tool on a high school player. It's almost impossible. So really, what you're gauging is what what really kind of what does the swing look like, and what do people smarter than you think? And uh, you know, everybody smarter than me seems to agree that the hit tool's there. He put on up, I think he put on like 20 pounds this past off season, and then his power just erupted. I mean, he really, really does a good job of getting out in front to make contact with the baseball. Hits, he hit a few monster home runs that made their rounds on Twitter. Um, but I think my favorite thing is he's just a really good athlete. Like He doesn't look like he's straining or robotic to get to any of this power or to hit the baseball. He just looks like a freak when he's, when he's playing baseball. And, and in that regard, you know, he does remind some of Cody Bellinger or Christian Yelich. Um, but that's the type of player I think you expect – to be drafting if you're going to go there at number four. Um, but, I mean, he's – man, I, I think if you pair him up with Eric Pena and Bobby Witt Jr., you all of a sudden can, you know, start to put yourself in the conversation for, you know, in the middle of 2021, do the Royals have the best trio of young hitting prospects, um, you know, arguably in baseball. Yeah, you look at his stance, and you, I mean, I, I see what you're saying with Yelich, and Bellinger is a, kind of the first name that came to my mind when I saw him hit, but he he does have that large frame and, and just a sweet left-handed swing with a lot of good lift to his swing that, that I mean, he looks like he's going to be an elite power hitter at the next level. Uh, but, you know, he's also a prep hitter, and prep hitters can be kind of hard to, to tar, hard to project, and a lot can go wrong, you know, in the years that, you know, before he makes it to the big leagues. Um, Sean, this does seem like a very college-heavy top of the draft. You've got Torkelson and Martin, who will likely be off the board when the Royals pick, but then you also have uh, Aza Lacey from A&M, a left-handed pitcher, right-hander Emerson Hancock for Georgia, who last year people were saying he might be the number one uh, pick, uh, but he kind of struggled in his first couple starts this season before play was halted. Uh, you have New Mexico State second baseman Nick Gonzalez, who uh, by the stats is one of the best hitters in the country, but um, plays at a smaller school. Um, so how do you see where do you see the Royals going with this pick and and what who would you like with the number four pick 
Yeah, I think Gonzalez is still the chalk play. I know we were discussing um, is that their type, but I think we can throw a little bit some of the is it their type out the window just given the oddities of not only the kind of asymmetric information um, that teams might have. I mean, there are organizations who are notorious for drafting or excuse me for scouting underclassmen and you know focusing on one demographic of players um they're going to have more information on a guy you know given the shortened season than other clubs um so i think that safety is going to be a big play safety in the sense of let me put it a different way risk aversion as far as Rather than taking a super kind of toolsy high upside guy, like maybe a, not the Bobby Witt is the example here, but someone similar to a Bobby Witt where you've got some strikeout concerns and you kind of just have to mold this guy, or you've got this college hitter who's basically hit everywhere. Um, it's going to stay up the middle, makes contact, you know. That's that's what you're going to get out of a Nick Gonzalez. You just kind of wonder what's going to happen with the power and speed. Um, so. I think the chalk play is about right here too, um, and you know it's part of the reason why it's the chalk. Uh, but I th- I would say Gonzalez, um, if it came down to like Lacey or Hancock, I would prefer Hancock. But I think the Royals, I don't know. I think maybe the Royals would prefer Hancock too, just given I like Hancock over Lacey more so because I like the all around personal a little bit more than Lacey's kind of one two. Um, and I think the Royals might like that too. Yeah, I could see not getting fooled by, but I could see getting, I could see falling in love with, you know, having that fastball slider combo um, that Lacey's got. But I think that the Royals would rather have a guy who's in that kind of four pitch mix mold that Hancock has with like good command. Um, and I mean, again, it's, it, it's, they are different enough that you can have a preference and, you know, you could ask 30 teams and they'll each have a different preference. It's certainly not unanimous between Lacey or Hancock. I prefer Hancock. I think the Royals would prefer Hancock, but um, I could see other teams uh, going for Lacey. But I, I think I think we're going to go Martin, Torkelson Martin at the top, uh, almost certainly. Yeah, if the Royals uh, have their pick between Hancock and Lacey. I mean, they've certainly had success, you know, at least initially with SEC pitchers with Brady Singer and Jackson Kowar, so, uh, you know, it would certainly would be great to add another SEC pitcher to those ranks. You know, with Nick Gonzalez, I mean, his numbers just are fantastic. He had, like, 12 home runs uh, in the short in the short season uh, that we had in college baseball. Um, but, you know, he plays at a smaller school. New Mexico State is in the WAC, uh, you know, the same conference that UMKC doesn't have a baseball program, but the same conference that UMKC plays in and for other sports. Um, they play in the altitude of New Mexico. Uh, so is there a concern there that, you know, you know also second basemen don't typically get drafted at the top of this draft. It's usually if, if you're good enough to be taken at the top of this draft and you're a middle infielder, you're usually a shortstop. Gonzalez has played some shortstop, although everyone yeah. seems to agree he'll play second base at the, at the next level. So does that, does that give you any pause when you're talking about the number four pick in this draft? I, I go back and forth between liking Gonzalez or not. Um, and I like I like Nick Madrigal a lot, and I I wouldn't say Snake Bitten is the right word necessarily, but I think I was too into Nick. I like Nick Madrigal more than I probably should have, um, and so he was Nick taken by the all, White Sox out of White Sox. Oregon State. Yep, fourth overall. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, and so I liked I like Nick Madrigal more than I should have. Not that Gonzalez and Magical are the same. There are some similarities. Um, both are, you know, obviously Magical is a very small guy, but 
Gonzalez is kind of similar, a little bit more power with Gonzalez, but he's not quite the base runner defender that Magical is. So um, I just so that's where I go back and forth between liking him and just being reminiscent of Gonzalez or being reminiscent of Magical. So um, I don't know. I I, I think I, I think. I, I, gosh, I don't know. I, I I don't know if I like Gonzalez or I go back and forth between preferring him or someone else. So, yeah. Yeah, you look at him head, and you certainly see a lot to like there. He is a little undersized, um, but he's a second baseman. I, you know, I don't know if I'd be so concerned about that. Uh, but he, he definitely does seem like a a higher floor, lower ceiling kind of guy. Um, but that doesn't mean he can't be a really good player at the next level and a very valuable player at that. Um, yeah. So it'll be really interesting to see what they do. I've seen the Kesson Hero comps. And, like, I don't really dig those because, like, Hira – I mean, just looking at Hira, I, one, I think Hira's got better plate discipline I, just because Hira has elite plate discipline. Um, and then, like, you know, Hira's a little thicker and he's got a little bit more power, I think. But, you know, Gonzalez is a better defender. I think the comp is kind of forced more than it needs to be. So where, where I was kind of – I, I kind of want to build on what, you know, Sean was talking about with Nick Gonzalez is he reminds me a lot of, of Whit Merrifield where mm. – you know, he might get you 15, 16, 17 home runs in the big leagues. He might steal you some bases. Um, a good defender at second base, but not going to win any gold gloves over there. Um, doesn't really do anything at an elite level, but doesn't really do anything that's bad either. And so I don't want that to sound like a bad thing. Like if, if Nick Gonzalez turned out to be Whit Merrifield, you draft him yesterday, today, and twice tomorrow. But you look at a guy where if you could go get Hancock or Lacey or Veen, you're looking at a ceiling that is could this guy compete as a perennial all star? And you know, I think there's a, there's a difference in ceiling. So really, it's just a, in my opinion, it's just a matter of do you are you chasing that superstardom that you might find in Hancock, Lacey, or Veen, or do you want the safer floor in Gonzalez? Because I do think Gonzalez could be the second or third player from this draft class to reach the big leagues. I think he's that advanced. But then I don't know what his ceiling is when he gets there. Likewise, you could take Zach Bean, and he may never be, you know, much of anything. But he also might be Cody Bellinger. So, are you willing to roll the dice in a small market on the cheapest MVP caliber player you could find, or do you want the surefire big leaguer, um, which you know the Royals have kind of gone back and forth on in the last few drafts? So. Um, but I, I do think it's ironic that my favorite comp for Gonzalez is Whit Merrifield, considering that he already plays for the Royals. Yeah, I think um, – and I think if you were to compare – so I think it's safe to say a lot of Royals Twitter likes Zach Veen. Um, the the consensus is Gonzalez. So I think there's some confliction there. I don't know if I've met – I don't know if there's anybody on, you know, quote-unquote Royals Twitter that dislikes Gonzalez. Um and I think most of us like Veen. I I like Veen over Gonzalez. I think uh, I think that the comp. I think the Yelich comp on Veen is. I would be okay if it's the Marlins. Uh, Veen, uh, the Marlins Yelich, not the Brewers Yelich, because I just don't buy that Veen's going to be a 340 ISO hitter like Yelich was. Um, but I could definitely dig the. Uh, the the Marlins Yelich who you know wasn't quite good enough to stay in center so moved to the left but well you know hit lasers all over the field was a good runner good fielder and left 
you know, hit 20 whatever home runs a year. Like, I like that comp. And I, you know, I, I if you look at my prospects list, you'll know that kind of I like to balance the risk reward. And I would rather take the risk on Veen, even though I typically am somewhat risk averse on this. I would rather take the risk on Veen than take the whatever the heck low the you know low ceiling high floor that Gonzalez provides and and that's that's me saying that not that I love Veen but I certainly would rather have Veen I think than Gonzalez even given the risk of um, prep hitters over college hitters you know the safest kind of quote unquote safest class college hitters against the one of the you know maybe the second least safe uh, after you know sure uh, prep pitchers sure and I think one one advantage the Royals have going into this is. If they choose to go with the prep hitter in Veen, there is a ton of college depth in this draft class. So if you take the gamble early, you might be able to get some really good value in college players later. And vice versa to that, if you choose to go with the college player early, um, I was just looking, Fangraphs has dropped Pete Crow Armstrong down to 27 on their list. And if I remember correctly, the Royals' second pick is at 32. So if you take their list verbatim, then in theory, Pete Crow Armstrong probably isn't far from the Royals' second pick. Um, Pete Crow Armstrong, for anybody that doesn't know, is an elite defender in center field. Like I mean, I, I really don't know that I've seen ever seen a prep player go get it in center field like he does. I mean, maybe even since Bubba Starling. Like the kid is a freak in in the outfield. Um, good tools on offense. He hits for some power, but. He didn't. I guess. I guess he didn't have a great summer last year. Struck out a little bit. So um, there, there are some questions there, which is why he's dropping. But you know, if they do go Gonzalez, Hancock, Lacey early, you could float a guy like Pete Crow Armstrong down. You might even be able to float a guy like Robert Hassel down to you, another prep outfielder. So I do think that regardless of which direction the Royals go early, they can do the exact opposite later in the draft because. I don't know how top heavy this draft is, but I am I'm in love with the depth of this draft. So I think the Royals are in a really good spot, regardless of whatever it is they decide to do. Sean, yeah, you want to tell us your Pete Crow Armstrong trivia? Yeah, his mom. How is this not like the? I could. I, I don't care what happens on the draft as long as this piece of information gets out. And I want to if if freaking what's his dang name? Oh gosh. Why am I blanking? The, the always has Harold Reynolds. If Harold Reynolds doesn't say that Pete Crow's Armstrong is the mom in Little Big League, because she is. His, his mo- Pete Crow Armstrong's mom is the mom. Yeah, Pete, yeah. yeah not Harold Reynolds. <laughs> Pete, Crow's mom, Pete Crow Armstrong's mom is the mom in Little Big League, Ashley Crow. And, of course, Pete, PCA, as we'll call him. PCA's dad was on Heroes. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I did yeah. not know that. Yeah, <laughs> he's from yeah Harvard Westlake, and you know Lucas Giolito's from there, and his parents are actors, producers. Um, so yeah, I uh, yeah I that's that's like my favorite thing about this draft um, <laughs> is, is the mom is there, um, and I think I think teams. So I think teams in this draft should be a little bit more risk averse. I think not that I think teams should be. Sorry, I think teams are going to be. I think they're going to be a lot more frugal with money than they typically would be. Just knowing that one bad pick or one unsignable player, if they judge them wrong, that's it. I mean, that kind of blows up. You take that out, that's effectively twenty percent of your draft if you don't sign one guy. Um, so I think teams are going to either go one of two ways. Of and I think the Royals are actually should be in the position of 
taking whoever they want at four, saying, listen, you're going fourth overall, uh, Zach Veen, you're going fourth overall right now. You can either take this 80% of slot and sign and start your baseball career, or you can go risk three years. Uh, Vanderbilt, I forget where he's committed to. Florida, um, Florida. Florida, yeah. Florida, yeah, sorry, Florida. Um, you could go take that, you know, you could either go sign now for 80% of slot or you can go risk it, move up, what, three slots? You know what I mean? So the Royals are in a good position there. I would just pick whoever the heck they could, offer them some sort of uh, lower slot than normal, you know, 80% of it, uh, or, you know, 95, something, some number less, use those savings for somewhere else, only because I think that you're working with so so little information or not as much information as you typically do the variance is so high on due to the lack of information that if you are wrong there's more room for you to be wrong so i would rather be wrong and um not pay up you know what i mean i'd rather be wrong on the fourth overall pick at 80 percent of slot than be wrong on you know taking uh, an underslot guy at fourth on purpose to go be wrong again at 32 or, you know, it's just, I think teams need to be it's, and the Royals are in a good shape to do that. They need to be more frugal, more willing to go under slot because of the risk reward is kind of asymmetric right now. That's a really good point. And, and to add to it, uh, the, I don't, for anybody that doesn't know the next, the top of next year's draft class is absolutely loaded. So for if whatever reason the Royals drafted Emerson Hancock this year and he decided to go back to school, yeah. A, you get the fourth pick again next year, you can redraft Emerson Hancock and your yeah. top five pick that you would that you'll probably get after this year when you aren't very good again. And there are you could also grab somebody like Kumar Rocker or Jack Ryder or somebody. Yeah. I mean yeah. yeah. So that would be that's actually a really good strategy that I hadn't considered up until now. Yeah, and I mean, I just think it comes down to teams have more leverage. I, I and I, I'm I'm totally open because I've definitely seen arguments where people think that the players have more leverage, and I think it's I don't think there's a right answer here, but I think that if I were you know Dayton Moore, I would be operating under the idea that I am, I am so scared necessarily to get this wrong, or I'm so scared that I am going to get this wrong because of how little information we've got and how I could take a guy at whatever forty whatever. Um, gosh, I need to get the pick right at 41 or 32 that has just as good a shot as being good at number as my number four guy because that 32 guy can, like I said, he could be Andrew Benatendi who in a normal year should go at four, but he's going to go at 28 or 32 or 41 or something because he didn't get to play a full season. And on my list of names, you know, that come comes out on Wednesday, um, so probably when this podcast drops, um, I've got a couple guys that I mentioned, like these are guys that under normal years should be much higher than they are, you know, all things equal if they would have kept going ahead of full season. So I think some teams are going to get some really good deals um, this time around. If the the Royals do go pitching wise, it does seem like they'll have either Emerson Hancock from Georgia or Aza Lacey from A&M on the board. Alex, what would the Royals be getting if they were to kind of kind of double down on that 2018 strategy where they did go after college pitchers what kind of pitchers would, would they be getting with those two yeah so before this year like back in january i think i tweeted something to the effect of emerson hancock was my favorite pitching prospect coming into the draft since like strasburg like i was infatuated with his sophomore year dude was unhittable i think he posted a 1.9 era for the year 
and I, if I remember right, I may not be right, but if I remember right, it was even better in the SEC. Like he got roughed up and won non-conference outing and then posted like a 1.8 ERA in the SEC, which is just ridiculous. Um, and I know the strikeout numbers weren't there, and so some heavily analytically inclined teams may not love that. But just watching him pitch, he I had never seen anything like it really because when, when Strasburg pitched, the stuff was so nasty that it was pretty clear why he was having success. Watching Emerson Hancock, it was like the stuff was really good but guys didn't come close to squaring him up. And it, like his dominance was so quiet that I just didn't feel like he was being appreciated. And so heading into this year, I mean, I legitimately thought he would be 1-1 and we would have to – It would, the rest of the conversation was who's going second. And then I, I knew he hurt his lat last year, but I didn't know what to extent he hurt his lat. But he just didn't look the same this spring. Um, I, I, and I have no idea what to know what why – because we didn't get that full season, like Sean said. Like So we're sitting here now talking about could Emerson Hancock be there at four, where if they play all spring, Emerson Hancock may have worked himself back into the conversation of everything else that matters is who's going number two. So if the Royals choose to go there, it's he reminds me a lot of Brady Singer that throws 98 opposed to Brady Singer's you know 93-mile-an-hour two-seamer, but he's got the four pitches. I mean, he's... He is really, really, really good, and I think if he was, if he had been a draft eligible sophomore last year, he'd have gone maybe one one last year. Um, but Asa Lacy, power lefty, power slider. I just don't know what the third pitch is yet. Uh, he throws a changeup. He throws a curveball off his slider. That they're fine, um, but he reminds me of a left-handed power, also Brady Singer a little bit where. You know what the first two pitches are. It's just a matter of what else is he going to develop as he moves through. Um, but being left-handed and throwing 97 instead of 93, he's going to go a lot higher than Singer did uh, back in 2018. Sean, do you think that the the notion that the Royals are kind of a little bit heavier with pitching in their organization right now and maybe hit light on hitters, does that affect their strategy and maybe they stay away from some of these college pitchers? Or do you think that they will just go best player available and take whatever is a top player on their board. Yeah. See, I was thinking about this as I was writing up the names and other thing as well. Um, I mean, I kind of look at it like, okay, on one hand, they just took a bunch of college pitchers in 18. So they're not going to dip back in that well necessarily, but last year they took their kind of toolsy prep hitter. We know that they're probably not going to go. They shouldn't at least with the first five picks, uh, you know, whatever, in the very front round because there aren't any prep pitchers worthy of it. So they shouldn't go prep pitching. Um, so it's like they could either, you know, the one demographic that they haven't filled is college hitter in a little while. Um, so I think that I think that's where Gonzalez plays in. But I also think that they are enamored with their 2018 class, so they might try to hit that again because, and I'm sure the world's aware of this, realistically of the big three, that, or really you could even say the big four that were taken at 18, um, you know, two of them aren't going to work out. Um, so keep, you know, you'll keep trying that, that, that line of, you know, we feel like we have good success finding college pitchers. Um, so let's keep hitting that well because we know that obviously not every single one is going to hit. So I go back and forth. I don't, I was thinking about that, but I just don't know if I, I don't think outside of like, let's throw everything out the window because it's a weird draft to begin with. I, I think you can make it a case for either way. 
uh, Alex, you kind of talked about having Pena and uh, Wit and Zach Veen maybe all together in one class. Do you, you know, if you're the Royals, do you consider how these guys are coming up in waves? I mean, if it's Lacey or Hancock, maybe they can join Coar and Singer and Lynch in the rotation without before too long. Or, uh, or is it, or you know, do you not take those kind of things in consideration? How do you, when you're looking at the at the top of the draft, is it just let's just get the best player we can, or do you want to consider what you have in your organization? Yeah, typically, I think if you you should go best player available all the time, no matter what position he plays, where he's from, hand. I don't I don't care what it is. If you've got one player rated higher than the other, go with that guy. In the event that you have two players and it's like a toss-up coin flip, then I think the waves do matter more for small market teams than they do for big market teams because of the ability or lack thereof to sign free agents at will. So if you're the Royals and you are and, and you are building on waves, I don't know that they will, I don't know if they should, but if they decide to, then I think you're looking at a situation where their big league lineup, it may not be that good, but it's kind of there. Like, you know, heading it, like heading into spring training, we kind of knew who was going to play each position and how much. Like, there wasn't really that much competition around the diamond. So, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're all all stars, but they were there. If you're talking about waves, then the college pitchers are knocking on the door. So, you have your position crop in place, the pitchers are almost there. The next thing you need to be worried about is who's going to backfill these guys. And I think Eric Pena is a great prospect in order to do that. I think Bobby Wood Jr. is a great prospect to do that. I think if you add Zach Veen to that list, you're adding more to the wave that is coming in three or four years if Nicky Lopez doesn't work out, if you decide that Brett Phillips and Bubba Starling aren't the answer, if you decide to move Whit Merrifield to the infield permanently. Um and I think that's a fine strategy. Um, but I think you put Eric Pena, Bobby Witt Jr., Zach Bean all together, I think you're putting yourself in the best position to have a dynamic lineup in four years. Um, not that the Royals will or should do that, but I think it would be a really, really, really nice um, fallback plan. But, hey, if this wave we have right now, Nicky Lopez, Whit Merrifield, Hunter Dozier, if it doesn't work, then we can trade, we can throw in the towel, we'll try again in three, four years because we have already built a great foundation for that next rebuild. problem is, if you're dating more with a new owner, I don't know what that leash looks like. He may not get that rebuild, get that chance, um, which is kind of where the gamble is played, and I just don't have enough info to know if, if he's you know, able to do that. Uh, the Royals do also have the 32nd and 41st pick, as you mentioned, Sean. Uh, I know you've written a little bit about some names you like. Uh, you don't have to, you know, we can read your article at Royals Review, of course, but uh, you can maybe tease a couple names. Uh, who are some, you know, and I know you mentioned Pete Crow Armstrong already, but who are some other names you like that could possibly follow the Royals with their competitive balance pick or their second-round pick at 41? Um, I wonder, uh, JT, so J, uh, JT Jin. Um, is a guy who got taken 30th overall by the Dodgers in 2018 um, uh, as a, a prep pitcher. Had Tommy John uh, earlier this year. Was a you know big prospect back in 2018. Uh, ended up going to Mississippi State. Um, I think he's a guy that maybe they could take. 
uh, if they have, because they'll have you know bonus pool to do it. Um, there's a guy I like. It's such a unique profile. Uh, Dylan Dingler out of Ohio State. He's a catcher, but he was converted from center field. So it's very rare that you have a guy whose safety position is center field, right? Um, so he's a guy who could be kind of, as I say, 50s across the board. Um, he broke his handmate. So that that's kind of questioned his power, but you know, is assuming his handmate heals just fine, the the power should be there. Um, there's a couple guys that I think make more sense. There's a couple guys that I would rather have later, as opposed to you know, obviously the Royals aren't going to target these guys at number four, but I would be you know, if I was a team picking 18th overall, I would rather pick this player 18th and in the top 10. Um, Garrett Cochet out of Tennessee is kind of an Andrew Miller type um, where it's two really good pitches. We'll figure out what goes on with the command, but it's that kind of weird sidearm uh, angle there. Um, trying to think of who else that I – I've got one more that I liked uh, as – my guy, my, my so far – my I'm, the guy I'm going to deem my number one guy is Heston Kirsted out of Arkansas. Um there's a video of him that I'll link in the article of him hitting a home run to center field at Minute Maid Park uh, when Arkansas played there. Um, he just gets hit for playing right field a little bit, but I mean, he's got good power, almost probably the best power in the draft for college guys outside of Torkelson. Um, it's like a 50 hit. It's like, you know, the, the bats of 50, okay speed. And he just gets dinged for playing right field, but I like him. Um, and then there's another guy that I like at 32 or 41, a little bit, uh, Reed Detmers out of Louisville. Um, he won't go. He almost certainly won't be there for the Royals at even 32. But if he fell to that, um, he's kind of a pitchability guy, pitchability lefty. Um, that's the kind of guy that I would rather take, you know, later in the first rather than early in the first, just because of the margin for error on it. But anyways, those are some of my guys that I – Detmers isn't one of my guys, but those are guys I think make more sense at 32nd or 41st. What about you, Alex? Is there other names out there you think that could, could be later in the first round that, that maybe surprises people and becomes – I mean, there's usually a lot of decent players that come out of the first late first round, early second round. Uh, who, who, who do the Royals – could the Royals be looking at with the uh, 32nd and 41st picks? Yeah, um, I'll throw out both the guys I got in Prospects Live. We did a three-round mock draft. So I'll throw out both the guys I grabbed. One, and I still don't know how to pronounce his name, is a guy, Slate Ciccone out of Miami. He's there. He's actually their third pitcher, I think, this year. Um, but I've been following him since he was a high school pitcher in Florida out of 2018. Uh, he's a draft-eligible sophomore. Um, I think he is the most underrated player in this draft. I think if we got to play all spring, he'd be a top 10, top 15 type of player. Um, really good arm. He works 95-97 with a wicked slider curveball. It's a breaking ball. I don't know what it is, but it's wicked. Um, with good pitchability. Like, I mean, he, he's in the zone a lot. He is really good. I don't know why. Actually, I see Fangraphs has him up to 21 on their list, so um, he's slowly climbing that list. And then the other guy I grabbed is Aaron Sabato out of North Carolina. He's a first baseman. But he kind of reminds me of Andrew Vaughn a little bit, where all he's done is hit. And I don't have his numbers pulled up uh, yet. I'm working on getting them up. But if the Royals are concerned about the lack of you know, hitters they have in their system, Aaron Sabato has absolutely crushed the baseball at North Carolina. So as a freshman, he had 13 home runs, 22 doubles, uh, 1,087 OPS, he struck out a little bit, 
and but he walked quite a bit as well. Like he was really good as a freshman. Then this year as a sophomore, in 19 games he hit seven home runs, um, had a 1.186 OPS, dropped his strikeout rate down a few percentage points, and doubled his walk rate early on. He was absolutely crushing the baseball again. So he's a first baseman only, and he may not even be that. But I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up working his way into a Billy Butler type of hitter where he he switch hits, but you know, lots of line drives, lots of doubles. Um, you know, he'll hit 15, 20 home runs, I think, at his peak. But um, he is just a pure hitter who has hit everywhere he's been. So he's a guy that I think if the Royals will veer away from their speed and defense profile and take the bat later, you know, they can add maybe the best bat in their system that is also not, you know, three, four years away. Well, we'll have to find out who the Royals draft here in a couple weeks. June 10th is when the Major League Baseball draft will be held. Of course, we'll have a lot of great coverage leading up to the draft on Royals Review. And I know also Royals Farm Report is doing a great job with prospect profiles, so definitely check that out as well. And, uh, we'll, yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about it uh, in the days leading up to the draft as well. So uh, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to touch on the 2015 draft. Well, five years ago, the Royals were in the midst of a championship run, uh, and in the middle of that season, of course, they had their draft, and of course, since they had success in 2014, that means you don't get to draft very high in 2015, and so the Royals had the 21st pick in the draft that year, and I thought we'd take a look back and revisit the draft, the 2015 draft, since it's five years later, and a lot of those players are either, you know, have either gotten their big league career underway or are on the verge of being in the big leagues. Um, and it's not a pretty sight, uh, quite honestly, frankly, for the Royals. Uh, at the top of the draft, the Diamondbacks chose first. They took Vanderbilt shortstop Dansby Swanson. Uh, it wasn't long before they traded him in a big deal to the Braves in exchange uh, for... Uh, no, skip it in my mind now. Who did they trade him for? It's Ender Inquiarte, right? Uh, oh, for Shelby Miller. Swanson? <laughs> a that, yeah, yeah, sorry. A trade that didn't work out at all for them. Uh, the Astros, even though they made the playoffs in 2015, had the, sem- the second overall pick. They took Alex Bregman, the shortstop, then uh, out of LSU. Uh, the Rockies chose uh, high school shortstop Brendan Rodgers, third. The Rangers took pitcher Dylan Tate out of uh, UC Santa Barbara, fourth. And then the Astros chose again after uh, at, at number five for losing a draft pick in the 2014 draft. And they took outfielder Kyle Tucker. Now, the Royals chose a 21st. That with The, 21st, the Royals had the 21st pick. Uh, and they decided to go with uh, pitcher Ash Russell out of Indiana, a prep pitcher. Uh, it was at the time it wasn't a pick; it wasn't like a huge overreach or anything. He was ranked in the top 25 by most prospect lists. Uh, but Indiana high school baseball is not considered, I guess, um, you know, as as great a level of high school play as like California and Florida baseball. On the other hand, Mike Trout came from New Jersey, so at the time it didn't seem like that big of a stretch. Um, Russell certainly seemed like a flamboyant young man. He, he arrived at the MLB, MLB studios for the draft in a bright orange shirt and alligator shoes, uh, kind of said all the right things, seemed kind of endearing, and then just did not pitch much in the in the minor leagues at all. He pitched 38 innings his first season. Uh, the next year, he made two outings, and that was it. And that was the last time we ever saw Ash Russell, Ash Russell pitch in a professional game. Uh, I want to be kind of sensitive to, to the young man. I mean, it's, it's not not everyone 
goes to the pressure of being drafted by a major league team and having to go through all that it entails. But uh, from what the reports are that he, he had an anxiety on the mound and he had uh, something what a lot of players called the yips, uh, kind of the same thing that Rick Ankiel went through with the Cardinals where he just kind of forgot or not forgot, but just couldn't uh, learn it, remember how to throw the ball towards home plate anymore. Um, so you know, he had to work out his issues with the Royals. Um, and last year, when it seemed like he might become close to coming back, he underwent Tommy John surgery, which caused him to miss the entire season and, and probably the beginning of this year if, if they had had a minor league season. So certainly had a lot of setbacks for Ash Russell, and, and that pick really hasn't worked out, probably won't work out. Um, but I just wanted to take a look back at that 2015 draft. And, Sean, you know, the Royals, I think, you know, did, that pick didn't really pan out. But I'm looking at the next couple of picks, and there's one name that stands out, Walker Bueller, who was taken three three picks later from the Dodgers. Um, but other than that, it's not like there's a lot of great players taken after Ash Russell in that draft. Uh, when you look back at the 2015 draft, what's kind of your impression of that class overall, at least in the first round? Yeah, hold on. I was pulling it up. I've, I I clicked out of the window, and I'm trying to find the baseball reference page for it. There we go. Um so, yeah, I mean, getting the two back-to-back Indiana guys and uh, Russell and Watson was kind of weird. I mean, you know, there's something wrong with the strategy if it works, obviously. Um, but it was still just kind of like, oh, okay. <laughs> they went with the guys who were, I think they were like eight or ten miles apart, effectively. So it's just kind of a, a, an oddity. Um, it's known as being kind of uh, headlined with Dansby Swanson, um, who was like the slam dunk number one overall pick that year. Um, you know, obviously got traded from the Diamondbacks, as you mentioned, but just uh, didn't live up necessarily to what he was expected to be. I mean, he got Troy Tulowitzki kind of comps, uh, but, you know, obviously he's been fine. I think he's at like five or six career war. Um, so, I mean, it, it it's not the worst outcome for first overall pick. And obviously he's, you know, uh, what is he, 26 or 27 at this point? Um uh, 26. Uh, so that's the big thing. But, you know, obviously right after him is Alex Bregman, um, a guy who, if I remember, um, was certainly not uh, the number two consensus guy. I think Brendan Rodgers was expected to be. Um, and well, so Swanson, Swanson was the consensus of number one, though, at that time, right? Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah that's what I say. Yeah, Swanson's number one, but uh, Bregman was not the consensus number one. That's uh, excuse me, was not the consensus number two. I right. think people had typically had Rogers above him, and so not that people were surprised with Bregman, but I think most people, given the choice, had would have had Rogers over Bregman. Um, and of course, Bregman's almost certainly going to be the best player um, in this class. And then from there, yeah, I mean, Rogers has been fine. He's barely played, um, but you know, he's been a really kind of pretty dang good prospect um dylan tate if i remember was hurt a little bit in college um and then has been hurt mostly this year did the hold on did the rangers trade him yeah he's in the Orioles uh, me, now right right okay i was thinking i thought he got traded um yeah he, he did pit, that's right he pitched uh what 21 innings for the orioles so there's that kyle tucker didn't you know he debuted hasn't done as well as they thought tyler J. I think uh just has been hurt um, mostly and hasn't debuted. Ben Attendee, as I've always talked about, it was the guy who um, probably, you know, in hindsight should have gone second overall. Um, but the Red Sox got a good deal with him as he rose up. So, and the one last one I want to mention is Carson Fulmer um, was a guy that was just so divisive on. Um, and I remember Kylie McDaniel wrote about in Fangraphs, the kind of the black swan, a book by Nassim Tlaib, uh 
and he he kind of picked Carson Fulmer as that black swan, an event that everybody thinks is not going to ever happen that actually ends up happening. So I think the White Sox obviously saw all of the issues people thought with his head whack, his command that he you know is probably going to be a reliever. The White Sox said. I don't think he's going to be that. They took him, and he's just been terrible. Um, and you don't see that a lot necessarily out of Vanderbilt pitchers um, who go early. But, yeah, he's just been been awful. Um, and who the heck knows what his career is going to look like. Going into that draft, I guess the Royals were really attached to uh, shortstop Cornelius Randolph, who was a prep, yeah. prep shortstop out of, out of Griffin, Georgia. He ended up going 10th overall to the Phillies. I think he was kind of a late riser, a guy that kind of rose up draft boards. But he hasn't really – I mean, he's still no. young. He's 22, 23. But, um, you know, he hasn't really hit much in the minors, certainly hasn't for any kind of power. Um, I mean, yeah. unless he's a great well, defender, I don't know if he's going to really make much of an impact at the major league level. Yeah, there's been a bunch of guys kind of in this draft because uh, Tyler Stevenson is the same. He had – I really like Tyler Stevenson um, in the same vein that I kind of liked uh, Alex Jackson, not in this draft, but Alex Jackson who ultimately went to the Braves. Um I like Alex Jackson, excuse me, I like Tyler Stevenson, and like he looked like a field prospect mostly, but then it's kind of turned it back around. Um, same thing a little bit with like Josh Naylor, who was kind of in that weird mix. He's obviously, if you've seen Josh Naylor, he's a bigger guy. Um, it, there's been, there's just a lot of weird types in this draft mostly. I think the big headline, <clears throat> or one of the big headlines, or well, maybe two, um, Brady Aiken was in this draft. Uh, who obviously was taken – was he taken first overall by the Astros? Right, in the, or... in the draft before he was taken first yes. overall. Okay, yeah, so Aiken is this one with the uh, Cleveland, um, didn't really pan out. Uh, and then Phil Bickford, who failed – failed the. I think he failed the drug test, got busted for marijuana, um, went to the Blue Jays, didn't sign with the Blue Jays, and then signed with the Giants and has basically done nothing. So – Really, really weird draft. And then, sorry, right after Phil Bickford was Kevin Newman, who um, I think I remember a lot of people really kind of liked him, and he's been fine. It's just, yeah, it's just a really kind of weird draft um, of players. And I'm sure there's narrative happens with every draft kind of, but this has just been a really kind of strange one. Of It's like there's one player who's clearly been the best, Alex Bregman, and the rest has been like it uh, just didn't pan out like really the way anybody kind of expected. I should clarify, Aiken was the first pick in the 2014 draft, which is why the Astros had the number two pick in the 2015 draft in Bregman. Kyle Tucker was actually their, I guess, normal pick. Yeah, uh, So that's right. why they had two picks in the top five. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was just looking at your you, – you compiled a draft board that year like from the consensus oh, uh, yeah, draft rankings. And going off that, if the Royals had used that, they would have taken Kyle Funkhauser, a right-handed oh, pitcher yeah. out of University of Louisville, who actually fell to the 35th pick with the Dodgers, didn't sign, was taken the next year by the Tigers, and has kind of stalled out in AAA. Hasn't really, uh, he hasn't made his Major League debut yet. So that pick wouldn't have worked out well either. But if you'd skipped Funkhauser and gone to this next pick on the on the on your consensus draft board, it would have been Walker Bueller, who has uh, already put up together two very solid seasons in the big leagues and is probably the best pitcher in this draft, looking back right now. So... Uh, yeah, I guess it just goes to show the draft is really, really difficult. Uh, Alex, you know, looking about the Royals draft class overall, I mean, you got Russell and Watson at the top of this draft. In the second round, they took Josh Stalmont, uh out of Azusa Pacific. Uh, you know, big fastball, 100-mile-per-hour fastball. Uh, at the time, uh, Lonnie Goldberg has said something to the effect of, like, they wanted to bring in some power arms. Uh, and and Stalmont is certainly a power arm. And I think out of this entire draft class, he's the one that, 
probably has the best chance of doing much of anything in the big leagues. Because you look at the rest of this draft class, and and the only other player that's reached the big leagues at all is catcher Nick Dini, who got up for 20 games last year with the Royals. Uh, the rest of the players, I mean, maybe Gabriel Cancel, who was a seventh-round pick. Uh, maybe he makes it. Maybe Emmanuel Rivera, who was a 19th-round pick. Other than that, it's it's pretty slim pickings. Uh, I don't know. Would, would you have any thoughts on the Royals' 2015 draft class and, and kind of how thin it is? Yep. Uh, this is a great example of a, of a lack of sufficient player development at the time. And I think the Royals have done a really, truly, genuine good job of flipping the script in that regard. I think their player development has started to catch up with everybody else. They've, they've really tried hard to make sure they were caught up and to improve their ability to develop talented players into major league baseball players. But this was not then. And, um, you know, I don't, I, we're, we're going to leave, I think Ash Russell out of the evaluation process here because I, I don't think we really know. We, and we, we really never should know that, that should be something be something between him and the organization. And one day when he's winning Cy Young's signing $200 million contracts, with the Dodgers or the, Diamondbacks, whoever Granky signed with, if he feels like he wants to share his story, then that's fine. But if we leave him out of it, um, even Nolan Watson, you know, at the time was kind of a wild card pick where, I mean, any 18 year old you draft with good stuff can be at that high, can be reasonably expected to succeed and maybe make a major league debut one day. But he fizzled out really fast. Like, I don't have his numbers pulled up in front of me, but I don't remember him ever really showing out, even in like rookie or A ball, thinking, oh, okay, well, cool. It'll be fun to watch double A. I mean, he just never made it. Um, Stalmont is exactly the type of guy that I want people drafting the second round. Guy throws 100 miles an hour. He's still there in the second round. Go get him. Don't need to know anything else. Just go draft that guy. Um, Anderson Miller, I will have him on all my prospect rankings somewhere around the 50s until he just retires because the swing is beautiful. I think he's a great athlete. I'm just waiting for Anderson Miller to do something productive so I can finally say I told you so. <laughs> Doubt that it ever happens, but I'm holding out hope. You mentioned Cancel, but, I mean, this is this is legitimately, I think, if you were just going to grade drafts, this is a terrible draft. Um, and, and, it, and I think it does happen. I think if you looked at, any team in Major League Baseball, and you you went back and just looked at ten years worth of drafts, they're gonna have a draft class like this. Um, I'm pretty sure I've seen, excuse me, two or three from the Yankees specifically. It does happen, but it's a really good point, I think, of when you're maybe you're listening to the wrong people, maybe you're just not doing something correctly, maybe there's an infinite number of things that just ran into bad luck, but man, this is brutal. And I think it, you know, if, if Ash Russell had panned out, if Nolan Watson had panned out, if Josh Stomach had panned out the way they thought he was, you know, maybe that decline doesn't happen in 2018 the way it did, but there's really no way to, for sure to go back now. I mean, it's just a, it's just, a good place to look at when you want to talk about the improvements that the Royals have made, you can point to the 2015 draft and say, see, at least they're not this anymore. <laughs> no, I think it's a good point you're making about 
every team gets a whiff every once in a while. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the Rays, who I think are considered for small markets one of the model organizations as far as player development. Here's their 2012 draft. First round, Richie Schaefer. Second round, Spencer Edwards. Third round, Andrew Tolles, who played a little bit with the Dodgers. Uh, the other only other big leaguers, Luke Mayle, who's a catcher, ended up with the Blue Jays. Joey Ricard, who went to the Orioles. Dylan Flora, who again pitched for the Dodgers. No one then really contributed to the Rays at all. So that's you know that's an entire draft they kind of whiffed on as well. Uh, so it happens sometimes, and and then the Royals. Certainly, had some bad drafts, and and uh, you know, hopefully they've learned from that. Like you said, I think they have a little bit. Especially, I'm 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 interested to see how with their new minor league player development that they have in in place, how these players uh, kind of go forward with that in in place, and 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 if the Royals are any better at developing players. But uh, hopefully, they do a better job this this June than they did five years ago, uh, and and hopefully they've learned from that. This draft for the Royals had a bunch of guys that I I actually think I I remember liking. Uh, Garrett Davila, if you've ever seen, go if listeners go YouTube Garrett Davila pitching because you will see the most old timiest pitcher you've ever seen in your life. The way he pitches, he's got that old fashioned big arm swing, and then like leans all the way back to pitch. I love watching uh, Davila pitch. Um, there was a guy in this draft. I don't know how. To, I, I I still don't know how to say his last name. Uh, Travis Mazies, Mazies. He was at Michigan. Um, was injured when he was in Michigan. Um, then got injured a bit. I think with the Royals as well. I really liked him. Just struck out too much. Um, I'm trying to think. Joey Marcus was six foot seven, six foot eight. Uh, and then he wasn't even the tallest guy on the Burlington Royals. There was a guy named Cole Way that was six eleven. Uh, as well so this was just a really weird draft and fun people that obviously didn't pan out um but i think a lesson that i learned from this draft is it had everything that i dislike which is prep pitchers to begin with uh two russell was like an arm speed guy for me which i just you know prep arm speed guys just don't do it for me um i like stamont for the most part um but it is another one of those where it's like the thing he did best was just throw hard. Um, it would have been great if he had some command. I mean, he was throwing 104 to Zusa. Um, you know, just so many loaded with all these landmines and like contact first. Uh, like Cody Jones was like a contact first guy out of TCU. Um, and so I don't know. This draft was a was a pretty good learning lesson. I think not just for like kind of how I look at stuff, but I think maybe the team definitely learned a bit. Um, definitely don't take prep pitchers back to back from the same cold state of indiana i I don't think they're ever going to do that again which makes you wonder like i'm assuming that it's the same scout that was in charge of that area at the time it makes you wonder if it was just like you know one scout got out there and he had one really good day where he saw russell throw well and watson throw well on back-to-back days and i don't don't know who's who would have been in charge of that but it is so odd that from a cold weather state you know, eight miles apart, like you were saying, that, you know, I, it's just, it's, that is an oddity that it's almost yeah. like, you wonder if that guy is still with the organization or if after this draft class, they were like, okay, you can stay, but we're not going to listen to that guy as much anymore. Or maybe he <laughs> runs the department. I don't know. I have no idea who it is, but it is kind of odd that they went two prep pitchers back to back from Indiana that are, yeah, it's just, it is so odd. And so hopefully, I don't, man, I don't even know how to, analyze that one but yeah and they uh i mean if you go back a draft 
Royals spent four top 50 picks essentially on Foster Griffin, Scott Blewett, Nolan Watson, and Ash Russell, and they got nothing out of it, which is a kind of a nice lesson all around. The one guy who they did take in that kind of span, uh, Brandon Finnegan, was a college pitcher. It's like, I think I think the one guy that kind of panned out, and Finnegan wasn't great, but um, was the college pitcher. So I think that they, hopefully they've learned their lesson of stop taking prep pitchers in the first round period. I can't imagine there's, I don't think there's been one necessarily yet that I've really loved. Like in the past few years that I would take in like the top five or 10, if you want to talk about 18th or so, okay. Like Russell, that's a little better. Um, but, or 21, uh, but I don't know. I, I think they've learned that lesson. If it all worked out, we'd be talking about the Hoosier connection right now, but, uh, yeah, yeah unfortunately I- it didn't. Let's uh, wrap things up with our Royals review reviews. Alex, what do you got for this, this week? I recently watched the Waco series and I watched the entire thing in like, you know, as, as fast as I could watch them. I watched all six episodes, which are about 50 minutes long consecutively. And it was absolutely incredible. Um, I will say like, if you're looking for historical accuracy or a documentary, this ain't it. Um, they do. I, I will say the the worst thing about it is they kind of gloss over the atrocities that were going on in that commune potentially against children specifically um and, and make it out like um oh my gosh his name is escaping me but like the 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 people that were living in that commune in waco um were were, were totally innocent of any wrongdoing which the branch probably not, the branch Davidians, thank you and i can't remember the guy's name specifically but david koresh david david koresh yeah. yep that's it so they, they do gloss over it a little bit but the dramatization the the show itself and you know the the overreaching of the government. Like I am by no means a anti-government conspirator, but man, after that video, or after watching that docu series, I was like, oh, wow! Like I was born in '94, so you know I wasn't even. That was kind of like some of the high school kids I'm teaching now who were born right after 9/11. I'm you know I'm kind of having to go back and like, yeah, this isn't that long ago. Like this is something that happened. You know, right before you were born, and something I'm kind of learning about as I go. But the series on Netflix was absolutely incredible. Again, not super historically accurate, but a great series nonetheless. Yeah, check that out because I was in high school when that happened, so I probably wasn't paying that much attention to it, uh, other than just I remember seeing the images of the compound up in flames after they had raided it. Uh, so that'll be uh, definitely one to check out for me. Uh, Sean, what do you offer us this week? Um, I'm reading a book called The Fix, um, that, oh my gosh, this is going to be so boring for everybody. Uh, it's a fairly short book. Um, it's about, gosh, it's about LIBOR, which is effectively, it's the rate that these banks in London charge each other to, um, to lend each other funds overnight. That sounds really boring, but it actually is the most important single interest rate in the world um because it's it's what obviously you know trillions of dollars of derivatives are based off of but it's also what a lot of people's mortgages including in the u.s what u.s mortgages like floating rate mortgages are based off of so effectively there was this giant scandal um a few years ago that one guy in in japan um was Getting a bunch of oh gosh. So the way LIBOR works is that uh, twelve, I think eleven or twelve banks. They say this is what we were charged. It's totally based off of the opinion of these like eleven analysts at these eleven different banks. And so this guy 
um, got a couple of these analysts, uh, these kind of interest rate setters, to set the rate depending on what bet he had going on that given day. So basically, he manipulated a, a figure that was responsible for trillions of dollars across the world just for his own gain. Um, so it kind of goes over that. It's by Bloomberg. Um, obviously, if you know Bloomberg, they're a gigantic finance corporation, financial news corporation. So they published and um, wrote the original um, piece on it. So it's really interesting. Uh, you know, I don't imagine it to appeal to much, much folks, um, but it's. I think I think LIBOR is a uh, an incredibly important financial number, obviously, and it's just interesting to see one guy uh, rig it for his own gain, basically. Um, but to be clear. The world is going away from LIBOR. There is now a new system in place called SOFR um, that is going to not be like, how, what do you think the number should be? Which is effectively what LIBOR has been, uh, you know, since the 70s. So so it's called the fix? There you go. The fix? It's called the fix. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure everybody's going to go rush out to get it, <laughs> but you can borrow my copy if you don't want to buy it. That stuff is kind of interesting to me. I don't, have you been uh, watching the Netflix uh, series Dirty Money at all? Yeah, I watched the one on Kushner, um, but and I watched the one on VW, but uh, they're interesting, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if, if it's anything like uh, Dirty Money, I guess we'll find out. Everyone in the anyone that did malfeasance in the fix got uh, yeah. appropriately uh, penalized and and uh, got justice, right? Because <laughs> that's always oh, always yeah. how it works. Oh yeah, industry. just like everybody in 08 went, to, all the big corrupt bankers in 08 went to jail. Yeah. No, <laughs> they're. It, it's so hilarious because it, not to go much further on this, but the guy, one guy actually did get in trouble. He went to jail. Um, but there were all these guys that he was messaging and the guy would just be like, Hey, can you set the number lower? Because I need this. And so the guy, so they were responded on the Bloomberg terminal. Oh yeah, I can set it lower. And then, so all these guys all went to court. Like they all got, uh, the SEC and all the regiment bot regimental bodies were like, Oh, we're obviously going to charge you with this crime. Basically they all got off because they said, Oh, we didn't really do it. We just said we would. And it's like, and they just let him go. Uh, but the one main guy, the guy who fixed it, he, yeah, he's spending several years in jail. So that's uh, it'll be interesting to check out. Um, so my article this week is um, my recommendation this week is an article about an MLB.com by Mike Petrillo. Uh, there's been you know, since we have time off. There's been a lot of really cool historic uh, articles about history, baseball history, uh, and a lot of interesting what ifs. And I love what ifs. Just I love alternate histories. Uh, so he has an article up uh, this week, actually came out last week, about how the St. Louis Browns uh, very nearly moved to Los Angeles, uh, became the first team to move out to California, uh, and how it, how it was disrupted. So for anyone who doesn't know or remember, the St. Louis, the St. Louis used to have two baseball teams, the Cardinals in the National League, the Browns in the American League. The Browns were kind of the, um, the lesser team, although they at one point it looked like the Browns might be the team that stuck around in St. Louis and the Cardinals would have to leave. Uh, but uh, the Cardinals were bought by Augustus Bush, and that really strengthened the, the franchise, and they they end up becoming the, the top fiddle. The Browns were looking to move in nineteen in the early nineteen forties, um, and they were looking for greener pastures. And California was kind of the up and coming uh, place that a lot of teams were looking uh, were eyeing at the time. And so in uh, nineteen forty two, they they finally worked out an agreement to go to Los Angeles, play in a minor league baseball stadium called Wrigley Field out in Los Angeles. Uh, for the 1943 season, um, they would they were even worked out like how the travel would work uh, with it being so far away from all the other teams, uh, and they would be kind of co-financed by the Bank of America, and so they're all ready to they, they all they had to do was was get approved by other owners and it was a formality. All the other other owners thought it would be a great idea to get this team out of the shadow of the Cardinals and into California, 
And so they set up a vote, and then they even arranged, since it was a formality, they already arranged a press conference for that late, that afternoon. And that date was December 8th, 1942. That date sounds kind of familiar. That's because on December 7th, 1942, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Once that happened, the West Coast did not seem like such an attractive place to put a Major League Baseball team. So quickly, the owners disapproved the move. Even the Browns voted against it. And the plans to move to California were scrapped. They would stay in St. Louis for another 11 years, actually, until they finally moved to Baltimore to become the Orioles in 1953. So Petrillo kind of paints out a scenario of what would happen if they had actually gone through with their plans to move to Los Angeles. Say maybe they had announced it a couple days before and gone through with it. Uh, And he kind of goes to this whole scenario of how everything changes, because if they go to Los Angeles, well, the Dodgers don't go to Los Angeles and the Dodgers would still probably move because they were looking to get out of Brooklyn. So he has them instead going to the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and they become the Dallas Dodgers. And the Giants, who were in New York at the time, they had to be talked into going to San Francisco with the Dodgers. If the Dodgers don't go to Los Angeles, then the, Do- then the Giants go to their, their plan that they originally wanted to do, which is to move to Minneapolis and become the Minnesota Giants. And so there's all these like, kind of butterfly effects of, well, this happens, this happens. The, the Senators move to Atlanta. Uh, the athletics never moved to Kansas City. They instead move all the way to the to um, uh, Los Angeles themselves to become the American League team. In Lo- or no, not Los Angeles. Um, I forget where they ha- he has them going. Uh, but anyway, there's a whole different scenario where you know the Royals still exist, but the league looks totally different. Uh, and so it's just I don't know. It's just interesting kind of what if scenario uh, and just kind of interesting to think about, especially when you have, we have all this free time where we don't have any live baseball. So anyway, Mike Petrillo's uh, look up as uh, the story of the Los Angeles Browns that change baseball forever at MLB.com. So, Check that out. So you're saying though, that we would be in no jeopardy of Clayton Kershaw collapsing every postseason because the Dodgers would still be around, right? The Dodgers would still be around, but they'd be in Dallas and oh yeah yeah so everything would change and i would they have still drafted clayton kershaw who knows that's but, true yeah. and, and with the bright lights of dallas what he built under the heat of dallas we don't know yeah you never know huh yeah. Okay. so yeah a lot of, yeah so it's just kind of interesting counterfactual like what would have happened uh so, so definitely check that out so anyway that's uh well before we go i guess we should ask alex uh, uh what, what's what's going on at royals farm report what do you have on tap uh, leading up to the draft uh, Drew has kind of been running our draft profile campaign. I got, I, I, like I said earlier, I'm a teacher, so I got caught up in having to reprogram school online all spring. So I was way behind in draft stuff and baseball and anything. So Drew has been heading our draft profile reports. He's been doing a great job. He should have won, I think, every day leading up to the draft. And we will get together and do a mock draft here sometime soon, less of a what we think will happen more of a, what we would do uh, here pretty soon. Um, but yeah, otherwise keep your eyes out. Well, you should have one player here pretty much every day leading up to the draft. Great. Well, I definitely want to check that out. And uh, thanks again for being on the uh, podcast tonight, Sean, thank you for being here as well. And thanks to all our readers and listeners for visiting our site. And we'll talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.